Oh yeah, Duncan Green here with the latest roundup of posts on From Poverty to Power. We're in the midst of a British heat wave. Now a heat wave in Britain is anything above 30 degrees. Last week I was in Italy and it was more like 40 degrees, but somehow it's different here that houses are not built for heat. On the other hand, they're not built for cold. I think probably British houses are just built for rain and sometimes not even that. But anyway, we're all completely crushed by this terrible, terrible heat. Um, but I will try and not be too groggy and try and talk you through the last uh, two weeks or so of posts on the blog. So I started up with links I liked. One of my favorite bloggers is Branko Milanovic, the inequality guru, because he's just such a, he's a classic European intellectual. He reads voraciously and he's always interesting. And he had a post comparing Marx and Keynes. And there's just this paragraph to give an example of the way he writes. Marx was a historian who believed that economics shapes history. Keynes, the smartest advisor to power. In Das Kapital, we have a Bible of capitalism. In general theory, we have The Prince, you know, Machiavelli's famous book, for economic management of capitalism. Beautiful. I mean, he's just got this great ability to see beyond the obvious and, and, and write really beautifully. Um, so very, very enjoyable. I recommend his Global Inequality blog if you're not already following it. The second piece was on starving civilians as an ancient military tactic, but today it's a war crime in Ukraine, Yemen, Tigray and elsewhere. Really interesting um, uh, sort of historical update on, on the use of starvation as a military weapon and a counter to organization, aid organisations, including Oxfam, who have been trying to draw attention to the hunger crisis across sub-Saharan Africa and often say this is mainly about drought. And uh, Tan Dannenbaum, Alex Duval and Daniel Maxwell in the conversation said, hold on a minute, this is actually about deliberate use of hunger as a war crime. So I thought I'd repost it. A hideous contradiction is playing out in war-torn Ukraine. Thousands of Ukrainians are starving in besieged cities. Meanwhile, the country's grain stores are bursting with food and the government is begging for international assistance to export Ukrainian grain to world markets. Freeing the wheat will blunt the world food crisis, which is an urgent imperative, but it won't stop belligerents around the world from using starvation as a favoured weapon. At the end of 2021, almost 200 million people globally were suffering acute food insecurity. The number climbed after Russia's invasion and blockade of Ukraine, a key exporter of grains and oilseeds, which disrupted world food markets. This is pushing up food prices and straining aid budgets. Russia isn't the only belligerent to weaponize hunger. Most people at risk of famine today live in places afflicted by war. Many are being de deliberately starved in what amounts to a form of societal torture. Historically, starvation tactics have been excluded from war crimes prosecutions. As scholars who study international law, humanitarian crises and food security, our view is that it is time to confront the criminality of this practice. It's tempting to think that only totalitarians would use food as a weapon. But liberal states are not innocent. The Lieber Code of 1863, which President Abraham Lincoln issued to instruct the Union Army on the limits of hostilities, provided that it was lawful to starve the hostile belligerent armed or unarmed, specifying that fleeing civilians could be driven back into a besieged location so as to hasten the surrender. The US Department of Defense did not formally renounce this legal position until 2015. 
This was not merely a paper doctrine. The Atlantic powers used mass starvation as a, as a weapon in both world wars. When the Geneva when the Geneva Conventions, key treaties governing warfare, were drafted after World War II, the US and Great Britain successfully resisted efforts to prohibit the use of starvation, ensuring that starvation of civilians would remain permissible in war for several more decades. But then what's interesting is they then update that and bring us up to date. The first significant steps towards outlawing starvation tactics came after war-driven famines in Nigeria's breakaway Biafra region in the late 1960s and Bangladesh in 1972 and 1974. In 1977, nations adopted two additional protocols to the Geneva Conventions, each of which included the, the pro prohibition of starvation of civilians as a method of warfare. And these, those protocols have been ratified by 174 and 169 states respectively. In 1998, the International Criminal Court statute codified starvation methods as a war crime in international armed conflicts. A 2019 amendment expanded this doctrine to cover non-international armed conflicts, conflicts between states and organised armed groups or between organised armed groups. Despite these legal advances, starvation crimes have been evident in recent or current conflicts in Ethiopia, Mali, Myanmar, Nigeria, South Sudan, Syria, Yemen and now Ukraine. In line with the International Criminal Court, many countries now prohibit starvation of civilians. Some of those states have opened investigations into alleged war crimes in Ukraine and Syria, among these France, Germany, Norway and Sweden. Although Russia's and Ukraine's criminal codes do not refer explicitly to starvation tactics, they include provisions under which such crimes could be prosecuted. The Ethiopian Criminal Code also includes the starvation war crime. Criminal punishment alone will not end starvation in armed conflict. That would require an effort that includes reconstruction, reparations, support for displaced communities and targeted humanitarian action. However, in our view, it is time to make accountability a central component of the response. To that end, we urge investigators to focus on starvation methods in their extraordinary efforts to document war crimes in Ukraine. At the same time, it is important to recognise that Russia's tactics are not anomalous. Those with the relevant jurisdictional authority should devote equal attention to the criminal use of starvation tactics elsewhere, such as South Sudan, Syria, Tigray and Yemen. The next post was on a really interesting writer, Alex Evans and Thinker, who set up an organisation called Larger Us, and they have a new report with five questions for changemakers. And Alex got in touch and said, do you want to post this blog? And I said, sure. He writes really well. How big is our idea of us? Are our family and friends part of us? Of course. Our immediate communities? Sure. But what about beyond that? When we meet a homeless person, are they part of us? Or do we consign them to being other, part of a them? What about someone from a different race, class, religion or sexual orientation? What about someone in Russia, Iran or North Korea? What about someone we completely disagree with politically? Someone whose views we may find repugnant or even hateful? Here's why this matters. The defining issues of the 21st century depend on our ability to come together and on the size of the us we identify with. But conventional wisdom about change making thinks that the bigger the dividing lines, the better. That every good campaign has a resonant enemy at its heart. 
As veteran organiser Saul Alinsky put it in the last of his 13 Rules for Radicals, pick the target, freeze it, personalise it and polarise it. At Larger Us, we think there's a problem with that approach. Them and Us campaigns have been great for firing up the base, securing media coverage or raising money, but they come with real costs too. Because on a lot of issues like climate change, international development or migration, just firing up the base isn't enough. Real breakthroughs depend on broader consensus across the political spectrum. Polarisation prevents that and it can harm our democracies too. The good news, there's an alternative. The kind of change making that creates a larger us instead of a them and us. That bridges divides instead of deepening them. That sees victories in terms of transforming dynamics, not defeating enemies. And that recognises that this work is as much about psychology as politics. In Building a Larger Us, a new guide for changemakers, we explore five key questions for changemakers who want to pursue this kind of change, each of which involves crucial psychological questions. And the five questions, which Alex goes into in more detail on the blog, are how can we build belonging through our work? How can we bridge divides? How can we appeal to love, not fear, especially when we feel threatened? How can we help communities to navigate times of crisis? And how can we tell the kind of stories that bring people together? Of course, it's worth asking, does bridging divides mean selling out? Wishy-washy compromises where we just split the difference with our components, opponents, rather, throwing our values and the most vulnerable or marginalised among us under the bus. It's an essential question and one that writer and campaigner George Monbiot asked in a Twitter thread last year, in which he argued that it's a mistaken theory of change to seek to reach across the political spectrum. Imagine, he asked, how successful the civil rights movement would have been if it had sought to appeal to racists, or the anti-apartheid movement if it had tried to accommodate the views of people who wanted to sustain minority rule. Actually, appealing to racists was absolutely something the civil rights movement set out to do. It's something that was captured beautifully in James Baldwin's famous letter to his nephew in 1962, in which he wrote of white supremacists that these men are your brothers, your lost younger brothers. And if the word integration means anything, this is what it means. That we with love shall force our brothers to see themselves as they are, to cease fleeing from reality and begin to change it. For this is your home, my friend. It's still a deeply radical statement today, this recognition and insistence that ultimately there is no them, only an us that needs to be healed. But crucially, this approach to change isn't about diluting the ends we're working towards, but rather being creative with the means we use to pursue them. To take one example more recently, look at support for equal marriage, one of the fastest shifts in social values anyone alive today has ever seen. How was this shift achieved? Not through othering people, shaming them or calling them out, but through winning them over one conversation at a time. The activists who did this work weren't selling out, splitting the difference or throwing their values out of the window. Instead, they were focused on winning a genuinely transformational outcome through the power of encounter. As we face a welter of crises from surging food and energy prices to climate breakdown, from record numbers of refugees to political instability, there will be no shortage of politicians and influencers seeking advantage from inflaming culture wars, polarisation or them and us dynamics. And while there will be times when it may be tempting for us as changemakers to take the bait and fight fire with fire, 
the risk is that this just entrenches political divides that lead towards breakdown rather than breakthrough. The good news there is an alternative, and it's already driving change all over the world. From breakthrough election campaigns in Australia or Turkey to the African-American blues musician who's persuaded over 200 white supremacists to leave the KKK through conversations. There are a lot more examples like this. You may already be one of the people creating them. Whether you are or whether you'd just like to find out more, we'd love to welcome you to the Larger Us community, which is all about inspiring a different kind of change making and supporting a different kind of change maker. Very challenging and interesting from Alex. <clears throat> then the next, I think, I think final post is from Oxfam's Anthony Commande and Dylas Judge. Um, and it's ahead of uh, the, uh, the latest meeting of the African Union. And it's Africa is so rich in farmland, so why is it still hungry? It's been more than two months since it, since it rained in Nakuru County, Kenya, and Jane's bean crop is long gone. Her only hope on her small plot of 0.8 hectares is the maize crop, but it will also be gone if it doesn't rain in the next two weeks. In a normal year, it would have rained for three consecutive months during this long rainy season. But normal years are long extinct, and it only rained for a fortnight before this dry spell. And there's another problem. Dangerous worms are feasting on the crop. Pesticides could help, but she can't afford them. In fact, amid soaring food prices, she doesn't even have enough money to feed her children. The price of the staple maize flour jumped more than half in just a week to an all-time high in early July. Jane's story reflects that of so many smallholder farmers affected by extreme weather events across Africa who are struggling to feed themselves and make an income. For them, drought is just part of the story. Jane has never been able to afford any fertiliser or certified seeds. That means even if the rains were good, it would still be a huge challenge for her to harvest enough maize to feed her family for as little as two months of the year from her small plot. What's frustrating is that farmers like Jane could be growing so much more. Our continent, Africa, has 24% of the world's agricultural land and 17% of the arable. So why then are we the hungriest in the world and a net food importer? Africa imports a third of the cereals it consumes and 64% of the wheat, according to our analysis based on, based on data from the FAO. By comparison, the Ukraine, which has just 14% of Africa's arable land, was, before the current conflict, able to feed the whole continent. Clearly, drought and climate change are part of the explanation and are big factors driving the immediate emergency. But the problems with food insecurity go deeper than that. In fact, the main decades-long structural driver of our hunger and poverty is low agricultural productivity, rooted in policy failures by our African governments and international organisations such as the World Bank and International Monetary Fund, and equally in failures to invest in human capital such as education and social protection. The result is hunger-related statistics that could not be more disturbing. About 800 million people in Africa are facing severe or moderate food insecurity, according to the FAO. Healthy diets remain unaffordable for the low-income bracket. 282 million people were facing undernourishment in 2021, after a 47 million rise in 2020. The impact of this on the cognitive and psychological development of children and negative economic and health impacts in their lifetime cannot be overstated. Agriculture is a crucial sector for Africa, as most rural communities depend on it for food and income. It employs roughly 53% of the labour force. Yet despite it, the enormous, uh, dis, uh, the enormous social and economic potential, 
the sector has become a poverty trap. A big cause of that is African governments massively underinvesting in agriculture. Commitments are made but never realised. African Union member states committed to spend at least 10% of the government's budget on agriculture. Yet in 2021, the average spend was just 4.1%. And whether any of this low spending ever reaches small-scale farmers is another question. The World Bank and IMF have not helped insisting through conditions on their lending that agricultural markets be fully liberalised, promoting export crops and cash crops over food crops. African governments have been denied policy tools that are regularly used by richer nations to support their farmers, such as subsidies or public interventions to guarantee prices. Farming inputs, especially fertilisers, are pricier in Africa. Most small-scale farmers simply don't use them. Even those who do so often use the wrong ones as there's no soil testing. Jane feels the direct effect of such missing inputs. In 2021, while she harvested 180 kilograms of maize from her 0.8 hectares, her neighbour Joseph, who is a teacher and uses some fertilisers on his maize, got 2,070 kilograms from a plot of similar size. He sold some and had enough left to feed his family for a whole year. Jane has never used any fertilisers because they are so expensive for poor people, she says. Such real-life examples show how piecemeal policy intervention and low-quality investment are affecting food security, poverty and inequality. And because the sector is dominated by women practising small-scale farming like Jane, women are disadvantaged disproportionately. Women perform 66% of the farm work, produce 50% of the food, yet only earn 10% of the income and own 1% of agricultural property. For developing countries, closing the gender cap in agriculture would mean women increasing their yields by up to 30% and reduce the number of hungry people in the world by up to 17%. Of course, climate change and conflict are also key players in hunger in Africa. Referring back to that piece by, uh, um, on, on conflict as a, uh, as a weapon of war. Our continent contributes less than 4% to climate change, but has increasingly experienced extreme weather conditions that influence productivity. Millions of people are being denied their rights through displacement and loss of livelihoods. In 2021, there were 25 million internally displaced people in sub-Saharan Africa because of conflict and violence, 47% of the global total. 2021 had the highest ever recorded levels of displacement. So what can be done? Generally, small-scale farmers in Africa are net food buyers and among the poorest people. Usage of inputs is dismal, infrastructure is lacking, extension support is minimal. Financing options are inadequate and market link linkages are too weak to support improved productivity. So basically fix those, they say. Um, so there are five crucial policy areas for the uh, African summit are increased quantity and quality of investments, policies that reduce risk for farmers and consumers, invest in education, training and social protection, progressive taxation, debt cancelling and restructuring, to get lots more money into agriculture and climate financing to African countries. So I lied about that being the last post because the last post was me having a rant about thinking and working politically, which is this movement that I've been um, uh, involved with for, ooh, I don't know, maybe getting on for 10 years maybe. Um, really interesting group of people in the aid business who are trying to introduce more ideas about politics, power, institutions, political economy into the way decisions are made and programs are designed within the aid sector. And we had a big update. And so as usual, when we have one of these big sort of get togethers, 
uh, uh, I, I wrote a blog about it. So uh, th this is the, the, the community of practice, the thinking and working politically community of practice, which is a loose network really of, of aid wonks. Then, um, and it was just great to be in the room. It was a very good meeting and it was 50-50 in person and online. And it worked really well, very smooth, very good tech. Um, uh, and above all, it was Chatham House rule, which means you can't, I can't name uh, institutions or individuals, which means I can take credit for all the good ideas and I don't have to remember who said what, which is a huge liberation as well as guaranteeing people a bit of anonymity so they can be more frank when they come from important organisations and could get into trouble. So, some observations on, on this get-together. First of all, who was in the room? Donors, management consultants, think tanks and universities. Conspicuous by, this was a kind of inner circle, invitation only kind of thing, right? Conspicuous by their absence, INGOs, apart from me and one other, southern organisations of any kind. So it was quite an insider exercise, but it may be important, and I discuss this later. Is it an organisation or a movement? Well, it's pretty tight in the sense that most of us have known and worked with each other for years which is both good because we you know, trust each other and like each other and you know, have good relationships, but it's also bad. We're all getting old. Um, and I did feel like you know, the room looked a bit long in the tooth, including me. Um, but what was striking in the conversation is that most of the interesting developments have taken place elsewhere. Among people who've probably never heard of thinking and working politically with capital letters, but see the case for thinking and working politically lowercase. So some examples, if you look at discipline, so two big books, Chris Blackman's book, Why We Fight, and Stefan Durkin's book, Gambling on Development, both big books, um, both arrive at TWP-type arguments, but via different paths, you know, governance, institutional reform for Chris Blackman, and um, economic development for Stefan. Uh, so that's interesting. So they're, they're sort of parallel, but not, you know, really connected to the TWP conversation uh, as uh, in this room. By sector, so TWP uh, thinking has gained ground in, in tackling serious issues like serious organised crime, peace building, um, and is starting to leave behind or spread from its origins in good governance and institutional reform, which is fantastic. But again, small TWP rather than big TWP. By process, there's, you know, there's a lot of energy in the localization agenda right now. And there's large degrees of overlap between TWP and how the TWP thinks about power, politics, the need to build you know, and, and centre the knowledge of local people and localisation. But those two things don't really connect. So you've got really interesting developments going on, but not really involving the people in this room, or at least directly. So what should the TWP Easters do? Well, the worst thing, I think, in these situations is to jump up and down and say, hey, we thought of it first. You know, you get too much of that in the aid business. It looks sad. It puts people off. Um, one observer even said that those closest to the um, TWP movement were the most sceptical of it. They're, and they're put off by uh, its possessiveness and patronising tone. One person said, we need to allow people to use their own language. And I thought, mm, yes, that does kind of prove the point about being patronising. But some other thoughts. Um, Evidence-based. You know, we are getting more and more real-life case studies and experiences. Um, uh, as Tom Aston pointed out in a recent post on, on, on my blog. Um, but they are still dominated by aid-funded projects, uh, which is only one very limited form of change process. If you think about change happens in the world, not much of it comes through aid, and that's a point Stefan makes in his book. So 
What would a TWP analysis of, say, Brexit, Ukraine, or recent developments in Chile or Colombia look like? Turns out there are some. Um, there's a paper on women, peace and security in Colombia, but it's they don't get anywhere near the attention, at least in this group of people, that the aid-centred uh, conversation takes. Power. I think there's still a pretty big fault line running through the heart of TWP. Is this about making aid more effective in the short term by enabling aid projects to harness politics to bring about the changes it seeks or avoid obstacles? Or is it about devolving power via localization or other processes and learning to let go or both? In practice, the first approach is often about working with the grain. You go with the grain of the system and just try and understand it better to get the desired results. While the second is more often about working against the grain, disrupting the status quo, supporting social movements, civil society movements that challenge the whole thing. These are pretty fundamental differences, but often, often masked by the vagueness of the language. Projects versus training. Perhaps my biggest light bulb moment came when I realised that all the other stuff I'm working on, my activism course at the LSE, my, uh, the influencing skills course we're teaching um, uh, the Global Executive Leadership Initiative, Geli, are actually about doing TWP, thinking and working politically. But they involve a different approach to case studies and projects. We're training people about their individual skills, honing rules of thumb based on their existing experience, you know, um, running simulations, getting them better at doing this stuff. The Geli participants and quite a few of the LSE ones are still in the aid sector, but do not have to be. You could do this with any people at any walk of life. So maybe... This is not about big projects and shouldn't be about big projects, spending large chunks of money more effectively, but about bringing about change by seeding individual skills across the wider system. Now, is it either or? Is it ever? No. Aid projects need to continue to develop their thinking and working politically, but we need to think beyond the bubble and connect with other communities and approaches such as training. Viva TWP, but not TWP with the capitals? Not so fast. You know, maybe we need a cohort of defenders of the flame that spreads the word, supports each other, generates evidence, but doesn't take the credit, keeps its head down. There are some pretty good precedents for this, like the Mont Pelerin Society, which was the kind of kept, kept the flame burning for neoliberalism while, when everybody was a Keynesian, a Keynesian. In the aid business in particular, the risk of success is that your ideas are codified, turned into a new toolkit, and then inevitably dumbed down and standardised in a way that is anathema to the idea of being context-driven and so ends in failure. So it may not be loud or inclusive or transparent, but perhaps there's a thinking and working politically case for keeping it close, for being a masonry of TWP. There you are, told you. I felt like ending on a mildly heretical note. But to my disappointment, no one's taken the debate, uh, the, the, the debate so far. I'm waiting for people to come in and denounce me on the blog, but it hasn't happened yet. And on that note, have a great weekend. Talk to you next week. Bye.